Welcome to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. Since 1997, Scriptorium has helped companies manage, structure, organize, and distribute content in an efficient way. In this episode, we talk about the top challenges of moving from unstructured to structured content. This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Swallow, and today I have a special guest. I have Deepo Ajose Coker from Madcap Ixia. Deepo, hi. Hi there, Bill. Thanks for having me on. And can you let our listeners know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I've got a background in languages and IT. I did a bachelor's in uh, in that. And then um, well, almost 20 years ago, I made the move to uh, come over to France. And as teaching doesn't pay that much, I thought I'd retrain and do something that still combines languages and informing people. And I found a, a master's program for technical writing. And that's how I got into that. And so I did my master's and I've been working in medical devices, financial technology companies as a technical writer, as a technical editor. And then a couple of years ago, I got that itch to change professions again. And um, I wanted a little bit more creativity in my writing. And so I went to content marketing. And so now I'm a product marketing manager for Madcap Software, representing Madcap Flare, Madcap Central, and uh, Madcap Ixia CCMS. Excellent. Excellent. So today we're going to be talking about how you might be moving from unstructured to structured content and what some of the, I guess, challenges are in that move. So I guess we'll jump right in. I'll just ask you, what is one of the key challenges that people face? Yeah, I think we could divide, we could make like broad categories of uh, challenges. There's tools, technology, people, and methodologies. And I think we'll just, you know, dive into these um, because they're not necessarily like independent. Some of them flow one into the other. So one of the most complex parts, the most challenging parts is the complexity of implementation. Changing over to a new tool also involves changing processes, training the staff. Basically, some documentation teams struggle with that initial learning curve. You've got to learn a new uh, markup language. You've got to learn a new way of writing. Mm-hmm. Then you also need additional help, mostly from IT. So you're getting teams that never used to be in, be involved in uh, helping you put in your frame maker or whatever it is that you were using. You didn't need your IT department in setting up uh, Microsoft Word, for example, where like, you know, that used to be the writing tool. Setting up a CCMS involves uh, a little bit more of a, a lift that documentation teams might not be experienced with or be comfortable with. So the implementation really checks all of the complication boxes, doesn't it? <laughs> Totally. You've got so many more people involved and you've got time scales and everything as well to consider. So I guess let's dig a little bit into that. You mentioned, you know, conversion, learning a new markup system. What goes into that type of an effort? Okay, uh, let's look at the first thing. Everyone, I mean, goes to school, learns to write English, French, whatever language it is. But then when you want to start moving to structured content, It's usually um, an XML-based language, XML markup, we say. So it's not real coding, but it is still learning a new vocabulary, if 
you want, a new syntax, a new way of expressing yourself. And the fact that it's structured then means that as you do in your own language, you have a certain way of creating a sentence. You have subject, verb, object, and so on. And in a particular order, it gives you a particular meaning. That also applies to markup languages. And so writers have to learn, in effect, a new language, a new way of expressing themselves that is valid and that the machine at the end of the day, because we are writing for machinery when you start writing in XML, that the machine can understand. So you're learning a new syntax, uh, a new vocabulary uh, as well. So I guess coming from that angle in learning to essentially write in a different language, there would be some cultural and probably some workflow changes that would need to happen there. Absolutely. You're well, learning that language for some people might be easy. And there's like, you know, lots of courseware that's out there that can get you into that way of writing. But it does involve, you know, classes, training entire teams, and not everyone might be open to retraining in a new way of, of writing. And so once you have trained those writers and they've got up to a certain level, I mean, you can, you can only do so much training afterwards, the rest comes as experience. Then another big change that your writing teams will have to make is that ownership, that question of, I own this content. This is my, owning the source content is something for the past. It's a cultural change that has to happen within the team in that we're writing for a team. So we're just contributors now. We contribute to a pool of information and you have to learn a way of writing that makes it that the content that you put into the pot can be used by other people. And so those, my style of writing things might differ from somebody else's style of writing things. All of those have to start disappearing in the way that the writers actually create that content. And that's a, that's a big change uh, for a lot of people. I mean, I've worked in teams where during the summer holidays, someone says like, well, okay, look, if there's any changes, I'll make them when I come back. And even if there's an emergency, they've locked down their files. We don't have the latest versions and so on. And so you're having to wait for that person to come back. If your teams, I suppose, one of the ways that you can make the, the medicine go down better is to let them know that they can own the output. So you own what you put together. And in Structured um, in Ditter, you have the concept of maps and book maps. So, well, they own that because they're the ones that have decided which topic goes before which and so on and so forth. And then when they press that button, the PDF or the HTML output that comes out of it, they can sign their name to that. You know, However, in the creating of the content, you must start thinking, I'm writing for a pool, as they used to have in um, newspaper pool rooms. You know, <laughs> everyone would contribute. And then in the, in the end, you have a whole newspaper. I think that would probably go doubly for any content that certainly is going to be written for reuse, you know, so that you are absolutely writing for your team and not for just your particular need. Exactly. All right. So going from old to new, let's talk a little bit about data migration. 
Now, this part of it is, I think, one of the most complex and the longest parts of that migration from unstructured to structured. You've got to make decisions as to how you're going to convert that content. Are you going to bring in an outside consultancy or are you going to do it one at a time? You've got to make decisions as to whether you're going to continue updating content that is being migrated whether to use a production and staging server, whether to wait for that pause. If, you, uh, if you're lucky to work in a company that does not do agile, for example, and you have big breaks in between product releases, you could say, okay, well, we're going to take that time to then create all the new content. Do you also want to convert all of your content? If there's stuff that you're not going to be updating, this is your chance to get rid of all that stuff, you know, just don't convert it. And you know that whatever you find inside of your CCMS is what it has a life that is able to continue living. Then you also have to consider that no matter how much help you get, whether you're writing it yourself or getting a conversion done by a consultancy, there's going to be some cleanup to be done. Because if your content was written so well in the first place in Word that you could create a matrix mapping it directly to data, what was the, what, there was no real, no point moving over to data. Basically, that content was good enough as is. So you are going to have to come back and go over the stuff and change strategies as you go along and think, okay, well, we thought we'd be able to reuse this. But actually, maybe it's best to like, you know, have a branch of this or, you know, create a duplicate of that topic. You've also got to like, you know, think a little bit further forward as to how that content is going to be localized. It's going to be translated. And some of your reuse decisions must also consider that part of it as well in that. Is it something that is translatable or should we have separate topics? And so we're able to translate them differently depending on the context and so on. I think that that sort of like, you know, <laughs> shows just some of the aspects of that complexity of that data migration. Yeah, the localization angle is a big one because you will, even if you had a, a perfect migration, you know, the way that the content is now essentially tagged is going to be different than how it was tagged before. So yeah. even if the text doesn't change, there's still going to be some segmentation problems. Uh, so you're not going to yes. get that 100% match that you were looking for the first time out. It's it's something that we actually caution a lot of our clients with as well. It's like expect to take a hit on mm -hmm. the first localization pass. You know, you'll get a lot of leverage, yeah. but it won't be 100%. And then from then on, you'll see a, a huge improvement. Yeah, total. I mean, real world, real world experience. This is what we went through when I was working with a medical device manufacturer. And we planned pretty much what we thought for everything, you know, and we had that in mind, all the advantages, oh yeah, drop in translation costs and so on. That was what was communicated to the engineering teams who were the ones that, you know, that eventually paid for like, you know, the technical publications and so on, you know, the way companies work, you know, different departments, different budgets and so on. And then we converted everything and it came to that first release and we sent them what we, well, we sent out for translation and we got that translation quote back and it was 
just a little under what the initial translation was. Mm -hmm. Whereas what we were doing was just an update of some of the content. And we had some explaining to do in that. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, look, because of the way, and as you said, segments are different. And if you look at the code for a paragraph in Word, you'd put a bold on there, and then that segment goes off into the translation memory. And it doesn't matter whether it's bold or not, the words, that paragraph is there as one segment. Mm -hmm. However, in XML, your bold is actually elements, and B elements before and after and when the translation um, management system starts like you know looking through it it basically cuts off at that point where it en encounters a new element it used to encounter p and then end with p slash p whatever mm -hmm. with this new translated migrated content it's going to start off with possibly a p and then it's going to come up with a bold and end bold and then possibly another italics and end italics and then ui control if you were doing things properly and things like that and each of those becomes a segment mm -hmm. and so the translator then ends up with well it kind of matches but this changes those fuzzy matches do cost you a bit more it so what well, we had to go back to engineering and explain all of that in that you know further translations will cost <laughs> a lot less but this first one you've got to be prepared to take that hit absolutely actually speaking of costs uh, i'm sure there are others that we could mention here oh yeah well apart from training costs which we've like you know already brought in while this free training it's never 100% free because you are paying your staff while they're doing that training and so they're not producing content so it's not free you're paying someone uh, to do that but you really need should invest in formal training you know for your staff there's the initial setup costs you know so there's the cost of the software there's the cost to your it department in putting in place mm -hmm. all of these things you might need to pay for someone to create the publication outputs that you need to to have if you don't have that expertise in-house you might need to also invest in a content delivery system because uh you were delivering pdfs before but part of the whole content strategy is to have everything on a portal, on a website. And so, well, there's maybe cost that's going to be added on to that. And there's the cost of the conversion. It's either you're paying a consultancy to do it or somebody in your team is going to be doing that and not working on the, the project that they're normally working for. So these are all like, you know, costs that will be in there. Some of them can be quite high and some of them would be like you know just normal one-off costs and so on and we've already talked about the translation so i guess let's talk a little bit about the challenges of kind of maintaining your consistency because you know when you once you move to structured content yes structure has a series of rules you can't have this element before this element and a lot of the systems enforce that for you but what are some of the other things that you need to be careful about when it comes to consistency Many teams think, many organizations think that, you know, once we've got this thing in there, it's self-policing, if you want, in uh, inverted commas. You don't need an editor. You don't need someone to go over that because you're, really, you're overly reliant on the tools. However, you need to, like, you know, know that even if you have these rules in the order of elements that are allowed to be used, you might not want a particular 
element to appear in a particular type of content. So for example, you have short descriptions. Short descriptions is a particular type of content that you can add to your dinner content, but it's not always appropriate. And so, well, between user manual for product X, who is being written by TechWriter1, and the same thing for another product within the same company, but it's being written by a different person, one or the other might decide to include a short description. And they're both valid. They're both valid topics. However, why does one have a short description and the other? So you need that editor. You need someone who's there to be able to take a look at that sort of thing and to help harmonize content across the different content types that you have. You would have maybe an information architect who's there, not just to help set up that order of elements and help your writers learn how to use and put them, but also who's there to show good practice, who maybe has a session every month to just like say, okay, well, this is the best way to do this. Or we found these examples. Could we like, you know, make sure that we're all following the guide for this type of manual and this is the way we do it? Terminology is another big one in that, and you are, you can either enforce it using a tool, third-party tools that can plug in, or you'd have someone in there making sure that you use this term. And when you're creating terminology lists, it's not just a list of approved terms. You also should be looking at terms that are not approved. Absolutely. That must not be used. Absolutely. I would I would probably also mention the classic need for style, tone, and voice as well, especially mm. now that, you know, you don't have writers who own their manuals. You know, this is my manual. I wrote it from cover to cover. It has my voice or it has my interpretation of the corporate voice in there. But now you have a situation where you do have that reuse, you know, of individual topics yeah. in a myriad of different places. And if that style of that tone or or whatever changes from one topic to the next, it's going to be pretty jarring mm. to someone who's reading the whole piece. Yeah, I mean, a simple example is you have a writer who likes to use, please do this before you do that. Another writer who just goes, do this, do that. And if you're reading from one to the other, that can be really jarring, you know, and you might even take offense because you're so used to the pleases and thank yous from one author. And then you get into this topic, which is actually a troubleshooting one. And you find like, you know, you get this tone that, you know, they're telling you off. Whereas it was just like, you know, a difference in style that should have been enforced globally. Yeah. Equally jarring going from one topic to the next, active voice, passive voice, active voice, passive oh, voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So we've got translation challenges, consistency challenges, some cost implications there, migration, overall cultural issues, and just the overall complexity of doing all of that work. Is there anything else we should mention here? Regulatory compliance. Ah, yes. uh, I've worked in regulatory for pretty much all of my technical writing career. So that's like maybe about 14, 15 years of like, you know, the 18 that I used to be a tech writer. And adhering to industry specific regulations can get very complex. And while the promise of having a CCMS with version control and being able to prove that this 
output was created using this version of this topic. I could get that whole list out and prove it to you. If it's not integrated within the quality management systems of the entire enterprise, then you'll find that you know certain departments will not accept that as proof. Also, the mechanisms between your source files and uh, what you can produce with Ditter, you've got different ways of compiling your final output. And there's stuff that is that you use variables for, the stuff that you know you can you you're referencing by keys and so it's going to use this version as opposed to that version and you can also push content at the point of publication so you don't see it in that source however when you do publish it then you see this new word in there how do you prove to the regulatory department that you know all that content is sane it is sound it meets with the requirements and so on and that 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 was another really complex thing that we had to deal with that but by integrating the tools between each other linking topics to requirements for example so you always have like you know requirements database even if you're using jira that's your requirements database if you want but if you can link those two things as a starting point then wherever a requirement changes, for example, you know which topics are impacted. And so when you have to do a regression analysis, uh, a topic impact, a change impact analysis, you're better able to prove that to the relevant departments that, well, you change this requirement. And one, we're sure that all the topics that did refer to, uh, to that um, requirement were analyzed and we made the necessary changes. But we're also sure that we didn't create any, you know, fallback impacts on other topics in the um, entire manual. There's a lot of complexity in in that makes it that you really need to strategize from the start on how you're going to respond if you're a regulated industry. But then there's also the part where we can help you. And it's like, you know, a very interesting use case that I saw where we're mapping Ditter XML to machinery standards. And so a company that is an OEM manufacturer is able to supply the exact information required by each of the different subcontractors that they have mm -hmm. by mapping that to the IIRDS machinery standard. And that is a very interesting use case where, like, you know, regulatory and uh, compliance is enhanced by being able to map those two standards and being able to push the information, the right information, based on the metadata attributes and things like that, that are tying both together and you're easing some of like, you know, the workload, the heavy lift that, that used to go on there. Very cool. I think this is a good place to wrap up, but we'll be continuing this discussion in the next podcast episode. Deepo, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. Thank you for listening to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. For more information, visit scriptorium.com or check the show notes for relevant links.